Um, This morning, I want to talk to you about listening to God. Obviously, that's the thing that's on my heart more than anything else. But I want to talk to you very specifically. Listening to God is such a huge subject. Um, But I want to talk to you about the very um, small aspect of that that is caught up in my heart right now. I want to talk to you about listening to God as a lover, as a lover. And, And I think if I had heard that, about 10 years ago, I would have thought, hmm, what is this going to be about? I'm not so sure that's exactly biblical. So if that is you, just open your heart for just a minute because this is way outside of my comfort zone, right? Way outside of the box for me and for my experience. And yet it is where God has me right now. So first I want to begin with the story because that's what I am as a storyteller. I was 15 years old when I met my husband, Phil. Well, actually, I didn't meet him. I saw him. It was at least three years later before I gathered up the courage to actually say anything to him. He was up there on the stage of this mega church that I had become a part of in California. It's where I heard the gospel for the first time, and I was swept up into loving Jesus at this place. And he was the worship leader. He was just so cool wearing this. You you girls, I mean, you just don't even know coolness. Like the (laughs) 70s. This cream-colored Nino Cerruti three-piece suit. The vest just made it. You know, that was back in the day where our dads wore leisure suits to work. You know, with top-stitching, polyester, horrible, horrible things with these awful ties. And there was the coolest of the cool. Six-foot-two, big blue eyes kind of shaggy hair that was a big deal that he'd cut up from his rock band days in this Nino Cerruti suit. I mean, how could I not fall in love with that man? (laughs) For three years, I was just smitten. I didn't have a chance. I knew I didn't have a chance, but I could just watch him and drool a little bit from afar. And I'd heard just bits and snatches of his story, and that just pulled me even closer. He was a drummer in a rock band. I mean, hello. <laughs> just a little bit of a bad boy in there, and we just love those stories, don't we? Don't we? The little bit of a bad boy reform just on the edge. By the time I was 18, I was full-on infatuated. Now, I had never had a conversation with Phil, ever. I had never been in a group that had a conversation with Phil ever, but I just knew he was perfect. I knew he was perfect for me. But all good love stories, tell my novelist writing friends tell me, have conflict, right? So the problem with this love story was that my best friend thought Phil was perfect for her. Absolutely sure. I am so glad those years are over. Isn't high school just awful? (laughs) I don't know why the TV, the people who write the TV scripts act like it's so great. It's just horrible. It's just horrible. So being this quiet, sweet, compliant, note, passive, aggressive woman that I am, I conceded defeat before he even knew that we had our eyes set on him. Gosh, what men don't know about the rest of us, this race of Eve, and you do not tell them our dirty secrets, okay? So I told Gail, my best friend, you go for it. I'll bow out. 
I'm just going to let you have him. Now, keep in mind, this man had never spoken to me. My friend was bolder, never hinted, never looked in our direction that he might want to ask one of us out. But I gave her permission to, to go. And now remember, this is the 70s. In the 70s, girls did not chase boys. Instead, we worked hard, manipulated behind the scenes, to make sure that he chased us. As my mother used to say to me, die. Just run fast enough to get caught. Oh, that was a good philosophy. I think we've lost the art of that these days. We need to bring this back. I thought I was so gallant to give way to Gail. I mean, what a great friend I am. I'm putting friendship means more, my friendship with you means more to you than me than some guy. I mean, surely. Until one Sunday night after church. My best friend and our college pastor and I had gone to Bob's Big Boys after church. Any of you remember the day of, okay, Bob's Big Boys was like today's uh, Red Robin, kind of. Okay, so we went there after church. We were just talking, having a good time, and in walks Phil Comer. And my conversation just stopped, and my chest starts beating, and I'm just like, oh, that's Phil Comer. And he comes in, and we're in this booth of four of us. And then right across the aisle, he sits down at a two-people booth with him and a friend of his, Bill Jeske. And so he's listening to Bill Jeske pour out his troubles to Phil, his love relationship troubles to Phil. And I'm sitting right here, and Phil's sitting over there. Gail's on the inside. Tim's in front of me, and I could not stop looking at Phil. (laughs) Isn't that a horrible feeling? And every time I looked at him, he'd catch me looking at him. And all I think was, oh, my gosh, I'm being an idiot of myself. What am I doing? And I tried so hard to ignore him, but you have to believe me. He wouldn't stop looking in my direction. It's not my fault. (laughs) It was like a magnet. I mean, I could no more have stopped looking at Phil than if Santa Claus had been sitting right across from us. Well, we all just happened to finish our food at the same time. And we just happened to all stand up at the same time. And we just all happened to walk out to the dark parking lot together at the same time. It wasn't my fault. She doesn't believe me to this day. And Phil followed me out to my bright yellow VW bug, and he asked me out. Now, in that moment... It didn't even cross my mind to tell him that he needed to ask Gail instead of me. And that did not bode well with my relationship with Gail. I mean, honestly, I sacrificed my friendship with her on the altar of Phil Comer, and I'm so glad I did. So glad I did. So sure enough, we fell in love, and a little over a year later, we were married. I was barely 19 years old. And Phil was my first real love. I'd had a couple of crushes, but none that had lasted long enough to fall in love or to say that I was more than infatuated. And I'm so grateful to God and to my good dad who watched over me. I went into our wedding night just beautifully innocent and eager, a little bit scared, but that kind of good scared, like you know you're going on the ride of your life. To go from being so modest and so careful as I had been taught to be just in the last few years of my life 
to, to all the way naked and under shame is a big jump, and it was beautiful. Our honeymoon in Carmel, California, was two weeks of knowing and being known of intimacy. And I remember thinking on that first day back, back to church, I just must look different than I looked two weeks ago. Because intimacy changes us, doesn't it? Not sex so much as real soul intimacy and the safety that comes from knowing that you are each other's. It changes us. The way a cherished bride looks when she comes back from her honeymoon. I just love to look on that first week back after we've been to a wedding and see the way she looks because always the bride looks different. She was pretty before. On her wedding day, made up to the hilt and her most gorgeous. But when she comes back, she's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Now, a friend of mine had seven children. And when it came time to tell her oldest son, whose name was Matt, like my sons, about the birds and the bees, and just really talk honestly with him, his dad took him out, and they had a good talk. And he turned to his dad, actually they went talked together, turned to his dad with a look of utter revulsion on his face and said, you mean to tell me you and mom did that seven times? <laughs> This morning, I want to talk to you about coming to God, to listen in his word, to read the Bible, not as a theorist, coming up with what you know you believe, not as an intellectual, which is a great way to read the Bible. I love to learn. Not as a theologian, putting everything into the right boxes so that you know exactly what you believe. Not even as a mother gathering up pieces of wisdom for her children to make sure she passes along. All good ways and reasons to be coming into his word. I want to talk to you instead about coming to him as your lover. Intimacy. To eagerly listen to these words and to read this book as his lover. As his bride, fresh from the honeymoon, glowing with not only love for him, with with the realization that you are loved by him. Now, if that sort of makes you feel a little uncomfortable, I'd like you to turn, if you have your Bibles, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 25. And while you're turning there, let me explain a little bit. This passage, you've all read this passage, you've heard it read at weddings or on um, messages that have to do with marriage. And this is Paul's instructions, God's instructions through Paul to husbands and wives about how to do a whole new kingdom way of doing marriage. It's about how to do the Genesis 2 concept of, of two becoming one, two becoming naked and unashamed with each other. And it's so, it was so countercultural at the time. It's countercultural now, this passage. This passage, you know, we all love good love stories, right? And we, and we watch them on TV. And we love a good love story on movies. But they're, they're intimate before they're intimate in movies. So this is countercultural today. It's about marriage for the sake of intimacy, revolutionary when marriage was about, in that day, necessity. 
And we've all heard marriage sermons on this passage, but for just a moment, I want you to take off your this is a marriage sermon hat. And I want you to put on a different kind of a heart and sink into this story because it's also a metaphor of intimacy between God and us, us individually and us as a church with a capital C and us as in collective church, we are the bride of Christ. Start in verse 25. It says, you husbands, Paul says, must love your wives with the same love that Christ showed the church. And how was that? He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by baptism and God's word. Why did he do that? Verse 27. He did this to present her without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish, which translated into Dianese is he did this to make her beautiful, lovely. And in verse 32, skip on down. This is a great mystery. Here is logical Paul saying, This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. An illustration, in other words, of the way he is your bridegroom and you are his bride. I think this is a way of not listening simply as the theory, God loves me. We know God loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Theory. This is the reality. God is in love with me. God is in love with you. This is, I think, how David, the writer of the Psalms, I think this is how he read and why he wrote the Psalms. This is how he read the scriptures as a lover. Psalm 25, 14 in the New Living. I love the New Living translations, especially in the Psalms, because it just speaks maybe a little bit more the way we speak and a little bit more poetically. He says friendship, intimacy, closeness, what we're talking about. Intimacy with the Lord is reserved for those who fear him. With them, he shares the secrets of his covenant. And what is fear? It's to be in awe of God, not scared, not coming to him scared, like he's going to lower the boom if you make a mistake. But coming to him in awe, so enraptured with him, like a lover, so not so much fear of doing wrong as fear of doing anything that would come between me and him. Because I don't want anything to block being loved like this. Anything that would break that intimate connection to the one that my soul loves more than any other. Years and years ago, I read a biography about a woman by the name of Lilius Trotter. And I'm not going to go too much into it this morning, but it was just, it was actually not a biography. It was an autobiography. So Victorian England, single woman missionary to Algiers. So she was like, I mean, she broke. If you ever are interested in reading about somebody, she's like my hero. So she broke all sorts of rules, and she really gave up her life for Christ. In fact, she was probably the most promising woman painter of her day. And she set it aside because she felt called to the women of Algiers. And she went there and against everybody. It's just a courageous, beautiful story. But as I'm reading her autobiography, so it's her words, I'm not only am I falling in love with her braveness and her courage and her like she's this gentle adventurer kind of a woman. 
But I'm catching glimpses as I'm reading of her relationship with Christ, with God, as a lover. And I was racking my brain, figuring out what is this? I know him as my Lord, my master. I get that. I'm a woman under authority. I was raised in the British school system, which is very authoritarian. I get the lordship thing. But lover? Is like that really okay? Is that just a single woman in Victorian England being just kind of strange? Or is there something to this? And I noticed that she kept quoting and finally said towards the end of the book that her favorite book in the Bible was the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. Now, we know that that is not an allegory. Any of you who are students of the word know Song of Songs was not written to be an allegory. It was written as exactly what it seems like, several, about seven poems or songs about actual human love and relationship and sexual intimacy and and all of that. That's the purpose, the original writing of the Song of Psalms. But we also know that marriage is a metaphor between us and our marriage to Christ the King, to Jesus. And so she was able to see it, not as an allegory, and not simply as something she would never have. She was committed. She died a single woman. She never got married. She never knew a man intimately as her lover. But she was able to take God's word and and see it as the metaphor that it is, and she was able to fall in love with Jesus as her lover. And I, I closed the book, and I thought to myself, I, I don't know him in that way. I know he loves me, but I don't honestly, truly feel like I know why, except that he's God and God is love. I never had dawned on me that he loved me specifically, like me, the me that I am down inside. And so I decided to do, if you've read the book, you know, I call it doing a Jacob because I have this kind of love-hate relationship with Jacob in the Bible. He's so manipulative and such a deceiver and just so wantonly needy that he just seems the antithesis of what I want to be and probably is a real good picture of who I really am underneath all of me. And he does this thing, and you know, you notice in... And all throughout the scriptures, when God calls himself the God of somebody, almost always he includes Jacob. I'm the God of Jacob. And I'd read that and think, why Jacob? Of all people, I think you'd be a little embarrassed that you're the God of Jacob. (laughs) He's embarrassing to me, but he's not. He's proud of Jacob. So I'm not seeing Jacob, obviously, through the lens that God is seeing him through. So I decided to do what Jacob is to just sit with God and wait and to say to him what Jacob said to him. I will not let you go until you bless me. So doing a Jacob for me is I'm going to hang in there. I give up on things too easily. Give me an obstacle in my path, and I don't figure out how to climb over it. I think, oh, there's an obstacle in my path. I guess I'm not supposed to do that. Such an easy, great way to live.
<laughs> but it's not a great way to grow. So as doing a Jacob for me is saying, no, I don't know God as my lover. I want to, I need to know him in this way. I know I need to know him this way. So I decided to do a Jacob to be tenacious. So I decided it was summertime, the beginning of summer, about right now, at that I would read the Song of Psalms over and over and over again every day until I could hear him as a lover, until I could connect with that intimacy with God that I heard about in another's life. So I did. Day one, nothing. Day two, nothing. Day after day, I read the Song of Songs over and over and over again. It's just eight chapters. Maybe it takes a half an hour to read it. Over and over and over, and I was getting defeated and thinking, how, how, what did she see? I don't get it. Until finally one morning, I was reading on the back deck of our house, and the morning was one of those sweet, cool summer mornings that come sometimes before the day gets really hot. There was a breeze fluttering the pages of my Bible. I just could see myself there. And suddenly, it's like a light went on, and I just heard it. And I read in chapter 2, verse 3, this phrase, I delight to sit in his shade. His fruit is sweet to my taste. I'm sitting there. My heart is starting to just connect because my grandparents lived on an apple farm in eastern Oregon. Eastern Oregon is not like our side of the Cascades where we rain a lot. It's hot, dry, very similar to here, dry country. A lot of good wine is made there and grown there. But back in the day, it was apples. And they had an apple farm in eastern Oregon. I remembered how on that hot, dry summertime in an old farmhouse that had never had air conditioning, and how you could get so hot, and so you'd find the shade. You'd sit under this big apple tree, old and gnarled, that had been there with his father before him, who had, who had planted the first trees. And how you'd sit under that tree, and you'd take an apple, and just, you're thirsty, crunch into it. And I just saw myself there under a gnarled old tree, with an apple in my, in my hand and in my mouth and juice dripping off my chin, and it dawned on me. Delight. It's about delight. It's about coming to God in delight, not for orders, you're my Lord, not for correction, you messed up, but coming to him with a heart filled with delight. That's what Paul prayed for his people who he loved in Ephesus, for the Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, verse 9, write it down because this is really important verse for you to go over alone with him. And again, I'm taking this out of the New Living because if one word they translate that I think is a better translation. Where Paul's praying for his people, it's a whole long thing about understanding the love of God. But he says this, may you experience the love of Christ. NIV and the New American Standard says, may you know. But that word know is talking. It's the same word that is used in the, in the Greek language to talk about a man and a woman knowing each other sexually and intimately. So it's the same word. They weren't quite so quick in Greek to just disconnect everything. There's my physical life. There's my spiritual life. There's my emotional life. They just plopped it all together. And so this word means to experience. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is so great you'll never fully understand it. Then you will be filled with the fullness of life. 
Another metaphor that means with absolute satisfaction and the power that comes from God. Everything changes when we listen to God as our lover. Because yes, he's king. Yes, he's creator. I love those things about him. But over all that, the relationship that will bring us back to him over and over and over again as women who want to be lovers and loved is that of a lover, to experience the love of Christ. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about some ways to experience the love of Christ. But these are not six ways to experience the love of Christ, six steps to get on top of it. We've been reading blogs for way too long, and we think everything should be so neat and tidy. This is simply six ways that I, Diane Comer, as an individual different than you, and yet the same, have learned him in this way, and how I keep going back to him as my lover. So these are our six avenues or or ways into this kind of relationship that you need to, I suggest you write them down, but I'm different than you. So while you're listening to me, I hope your heart is open and wide to the spirit that you will come to him as you, not as Diane, but as you as a lover. So these are six ways that I've found to know God as my lover. Number one, and probably the most important that I didn't know is something I have now and since learned about God. It says in Revelations 3.20, we've all heard it, and we've heard it out of context, you know, at, at um, my husband worked for seven years for Luis Palau, who's an evangelist. So you hear it from evangelists, but it's actually written to us, to the church. Revelations 3.20, he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door... I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. In other words, the eat is like, I will come close to you because he waits to be wanted. God does not push himself into your world like that old boyfriend of yours. I hope ex-boyfriend of yours. He's not one to demand from us like that little toddler who never you can give enough to. He waits to be wanted. He waits to be invited. He stands behind the door, knocking to us, his bride. He waits to be invited into those quiet places that is just you and him with everything turned off. He waits to be invited into your pain, those dark places you try to forget, but you can't. He waits to be invited into those shamed places that no one knows about. And by golly, you're not going to let anyone know about because you're so ashamed. He waits to be invited into those seemingly unconquerable parts of who you are and wish you weren't. Your anger, your impatience, your lust, your laziness, that striving, driven, unsatisfied self. He wants into that place. And he stands there knocking, waiting for our invitation to come in, to be present with him in our truth, in our reality, every day. It's not a one-time invite. It's every day. As I was writing this session that I ended up teaching at a a four-week Bible study at our church, kind of on the book, um, and I was writing this session, we had my oldest son, John Mark's three kids with us for a week while they were away. They were actually in Iceland. What a fun place to go. 
But they were with us for a week, and they live in downtown Portland, and we live tucked into a little tiny town that's right on the edge of Portland called Lake Oswego. And the kids had to be at school at 8 o'clock in the morning, and the commute's terrible to go downtown because lots of people work downtown Portland and live in either the suburbs or in surrounding towns. And, and so it was, I'm not used to getting kids ready for school. It's been a long time, and I was rushing everyone to get, get dressed, eat their breakfast, get their hair done, get their teeth brushed. And they're used to coming to my house, and it's just play. So this was morning. It wasn't play. It's like, I, I need to get these kids there at least somewhat on time. And one was sick with a fever, so he had to stay home. And I needed to get moving on these notes. I had important things to do. And I was everything I don't want to be to my grands. Impatient and abrupt, moving way too fast. They could hardly keep up with me. All about the clock. We're going to be on time. And then all day long, I felt bad about it. My granddaughter Sunday is, was adopted from Uganda when she was three. And her story that she doesn't know yet, so they don't tell it much, is not a great story. It's not like the poor orphan girl. It's not a great story. Someday, Sunday's going to have to hear her story. In the meantime, Sunday suffers a little bit from residual effects of having not been rescued. She was rescued just after she was two by a wonderful Ugandan orphanage that gave her all the love and good food that she needed but and then a year later they got her we got her but she's a person who's been I know wounded inside and so she can tends to be nonverbal. she just shuts down when things are hard for her to cope with and I watched my girl I, I love this girl I love this girl like God has connected our hearts like we're the same person sometimes here she is a lot of times nonverbal, and here I am, I can't hear. And we just normally, we just communicate so well. Like she'll just do these little gestures. Like, and I'll ask a question and say, is that what you want? Just, she's just beautiful. I mean, I just love this girl. And I see her shutting down. I'm trying to ask her questions because I'm feeling bad in the car. And she's just not even answering my questions. I get home, and I'm just so ashamed of myself and feeling so bad that my grandkids got to see the underbelly that I don't want them to know is there. So the next morning, I got up way earlier because I didn't want to repeat the day before. Almost as soon as I got seated in my, I have a big white chair out in a cabin in the back. So we have a little 1969 ranch that we've been renovating. And in the back, we built, which is basically a garden shed, but it's like a garden shed on steroids. It's really beautiful. And so where I go to meet God, and I went out there in my big cushy white chair, and I opened the Bible, and I no sooner had opened my Bible when I just heard him speaking to me, his whispers to me, saying, Di, you didn't invite me in. That's the problem. That's what went wrong with your morning. No shame, but just more of this realization, oh, yes. This, I believe this. I know this. Such a simple fix. Had I only invited him into my situation, our morning would have been a completely different morning. He knew who my intention was to get them there on time. And he knew what I was doing to my grands in the prophecy. That is what I mean by inviting him in. Yes, to the big scars in your life and the hard things and the big decisions, but into your every single day, 
If you want to be a woman who's gracious to the people around you, sometimes you're just not capable of doing that on your own like I saw. So moving on. Number two, number one, we invite him in. Number two, notice him. Notice him. The Song of Solomon's chapter 5, verse 2 is in the middle of a story. The woman who is the bride is saying, I slept with my heart awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my beloved. Like a mom sleeps. A first-time mom, a second-time mom, a four-time mom. We all sleep the same. We sleep, but our heart is awake. Last week, my youngest, Matt, was coming down here to be part of a... um, part of a uh, youth kind of a rally or something like that. I knew that he was leaving on um, Thursday to drive all the way back, all the way by himself. And I knew he had, I'm still a mom. He's 24 years old. I knew that he was driving a 12 hour drive and I thought, oh no, you know, I I worried about him. I still worry about my kids. I slept all night long Thursday night with my heart awake, just worried that I might get that phone call. Your moms, even those of you who don't have kids like that yet, you mom each other and you sleep, you know what it is to sleep with your heart awake. Do we go into the scriptures with our heart awake, noticing him? Do we go out into our day with our heart awake, noticing him? Have you got, when you are reading the word, have you got your pen in hand so that you can write down what it is that you notice? A lot of people don't like to write to journal. That's fine. But non-journalers are generally speaking, it seems to me, list makers. So they don't journal. They don't want to write the whole paragraph. But they make lists. So that's fine. Be who you are. Just have your pen in hand so that you're going into the scriptures and you're going throughout your day and you're noticing him. What's he saying to you? What is he saying to you? What are you feeling Don't swat those emotions away. Sit there with him in what you're feeling. Invite him in. Notice him. Notice what you think he's saying to you deep down inside. Here's a fun thing I've discovered over the last several years. Often we're on the same theme in the body of Christ. I don't understand this, especially as a church. There are so many times that I will sit under a teaching at the church and think, oh my gosh. This is exactly what he's been speaking to me. My journal is filled with what he's saying. It's uncanny how the way he, but then it becomes a conversation and you bring your perspective into my perspective and I see the whole thing when we notice him together. So notice him. Number three, these are just simple, okay? I didn't even try and put like poetic kind of titles on these. I just wanted to be normal. Make time for him. Make time for him. Because we all know when someone says, I just don't have time for a relationship right now. What he really means is that they're not that into you, right? I mean, isn't that what they really mean? And you come to your girlfriends and your girlfriends say, yeah, prob- probably not. He, everybody has time for somebody that their soul loves and craves Which is why I love the question that God throws out in Jeremiah 30, verse 29. And write this one down, too, because it's one to come back to. He asks a question. He says, who, almost like plaintive, I feel like, 
Who is he who will devote himself to be close to me? And I know that you want to. You wouldn't be here this weekend if you didn't want to. But do you? Do you devote yourself to be close to him? And now that I've said that, every woman in this room feels a little bit guilty, right? Shake your head if you feel just a little bit guilty. I'm there with you. You feel a little bit guilty because you think you're not disciplined enough. But that's your problem. You're just, if you were more disciplined, you would do what I said last night and you would get up. You'd get up an hour early, two hours early if you were really more disciplined. But you know what? I've come to believe that that is exactly what your enemy, the enemy of your soul, wants you to believe and that it's a lie. I don't believe there's a woman in this room who's not disciplined enough. I believe instead of needing more discipline. I mean, look at you. Every single woman here has her hair done, has her coordinating everything. You, you packed your suitcase. You figured it out. You fit this weekend into your busy life. You are disciplined women, okay? So you think about why do we swallow the lie that our problem in our relationship with God is that we're not disciplined enough. Just banish that because I've come to believe that it's not true at all. I don't think that experiencing God's love is dependent on your discipline. I think you and I become saturated in the love that God has for us when we are desperate, not when we're disciplined. Matthew 5.3 is that Sermon on the Mount and My favorite of all of the verses in there is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's not American language, right? We don't say that, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? What's the kingdom of heaven? Because in the original, it actually meant something more like, blessed or satisfied are those who are desperate for God. A woman who's poor in spirit recognizes her own desperation for God because because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, because they are the ones who are going to experience God in the here and now. Not just later when we go to heaven, but right now in the kingdom of heaven where he is present. It's the desperate who come to him and experience his love. If you are finding yourself having a hard time Wanting to be with God, but not actually carving out the time to be with God. I think we bring that to him and we say to our father, to our lover, I want to want this. But for whatever reasons, it's just not there. I'm just not feeling it. Will you help me? And he does. He loves that prayer. It's like he's waiting to be wanted just like that. And he will make you want him. Okay, I'll keep moving on. I could go on and on on that one. Number four, believe him. I didn't say believe in him. Believe him. Because a lot of us women are hard to love. We are hard to love. Take it from me. I have two sons, two daughters. I watched my sons try to love women who are hard to love. Because we just cannot allow ourselves to believe that we are beautiful that we're beautiful women. We just can't let ourselves believe that. Instead, we see all of our flaws. I'm not just talking about the outside. I'm talking about us as people. 
We see everything wrong with us, how, I, how we messed up, how we didn't do that right, how we blew it, how we gave ourselves away when we shouldn't have, how we messed up our lives, who we keep messing up our lives. And we have a really hard time believing that we are beautiful. But Song of Psalms phrase that I want to give to you, I hope that you will just meditate on it over and over again. In Song of Psalms 6, verse 9 where the groom now is saying to the bride, where Jesus is now saying to you, his, his church, my dove, my perfect one, is unique. My heart just catches on that because, like you, a lot of you, maybe every one of you, I've felt most of my life like a square peg in a round hole. And I've not seen that as a good thing. I've seen that as a flawed part of me, that I need to read books and, and be mentored and, and learn the steps and, 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 and go to that blog so that I understand how to be a round hole, a round peg that fits neatly into a round hole. And here is your lover saying, my dove, my perfect one, is unique. He's unique. Psalm 139 is all about that uniqueness. And we read it and we hear it, but then we think our uniqueness is a flaw in us and he doesn't see us that way. The idea of loving, of God loving me specifically, it's still relatively new to me. I'm still hard for me even to talk openly about. It's taken me years to grasp this idea. It's an act of faith on my part and on most of your parts to recognize the truth of it, that he made you, that he formed you, that he is transforming you, and that what that transformation is not to make you a rounder, hole, a rounder peg that can fit into the round hole, but to make you completely and entirely who you are, who you really are. It's not about you becoming better. Transformation is not about you becoming better. It's about you becoming fully who God intended you to be, who he had in mind, who he designed as an artist, how he created you, the beautiful you. That's what transformation is about. Not the beautiful ideal of what this culture currently says that a godly woman looks like or an appealing woman looks like or the men want or a real mom should be and do, but who you are. And as we grow closer and, and more intimate with him, as we begin to trust that he really views us that way, we get set free to be who we really are. And yes, there are some people who won't like who you really are, but that's because they probably deep down inside don't like who they really are, and it's okay. And we go with the confidence of knowing that this is how he made me. He made me different, and he made me different on purpose. There's, a, there's a, the old movie, um, oh, oh, what's that old movie? The runner movie, the guy who was in the Olympics, Chariots of Fire. Okay, so he goes in there, and he's not fitting very well with the mold of the time, and his sister is reminding him. Do you remember the story reminding him that, you know, he's not being a very good Christian because he's out trying to run in the Olympics, and he's supposed to be in China with her? And he has this phrase in there where he says, you know, I run. Uh, let's see. Does anybody know the phrase? I run. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Oh, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. 
I love that because God made me slow, very slow. Everything I do is slow. I make the bed slow. Drives my husband crazy. We do not, for the sake of our marriage, we do not make the bed together anymore. (laughs) Because I make it slow because I want it perfect. I want every little bit tucked in. There's something just beautiful about a beautifully made bed. Everything's even. I mean, it takes a lot of time to be like that. He made me slow. Everything I do is slow. I think slow. I eat slow. I, I do life slow. And all my life, I thought there was something wrong with me. If I would just learn to just pick up my pace, be more efficient, write my list, follow. Oh, I write my list. It's following my list. It's just an awful thing. Because something distracts me, and I think, oh, that's beautiful. I want to know more about that. I want to learn about that. So I, I just abandon my list. I always thought something's wrong with me. Until my husband, okay, some of you have good husbands. And those of you who aren't married, marry a man like this, okay? My husband is the one who saw that in the movie and said to me, Die, God made you slow on purpose. When you're slow, you feel his favor. And it's like a light taught on me. Yes, yes. The reason I was such a crank when I was trying to get the kids out the door in a hurry was because I was not being me. I was going fast, and when I'm fast, I don't feel his pleasure or his presence. I feel mad at myself that I'm not better at being fast. So that's my little bit of a story, and all of you have things that you think are your flaws that you need to bring to him and say, could this not be a flaw? Is it possible that he made me blank on purpose, introverted, shy, extrovert talks too much one of my closest friends and I were on a walk the other day and she said you know I always feel like I'm just too much I just too much she's I overwhelm everybody I'm too much I looked at her and I said you know what Michelle I always feel like I'm not enough no wonder we're such good friends And it's true. I look at Michelle. I think she's like everything I want to be. And she feels like she's too much. Like she overwhelms everybody. I feel like I bore everybody because I'm just me. God made Michelle on purpose the way she's supposed to be. And when she is who Michelle is supposed to be, sure, some people will say, will be annoyed with that. But most of us are just drawn to the beauty of Michelle having so much that she spills it onto those of us who feel like we're not enough. I'm talking way too long here, and I lost my stopwatch. Okay, I'm going to keep moving on here. But, ah, okay, excuse me. Number five, love him, of course. Love him. When Phil was pursuing me, Nothing would have happened if I had not responded to him and loved him in return. We learn over years how to love each other. We study each other's likes and dislikes. I am not a great cook by any means. My head is always in a million places. Really good cooks are really like they're present. They're totally delighting in it. But Phil thinks I'm a great cook because I know what he likes. I put in all the spices I know he likes. I know he likes more pepper than anybody else. I know he likes this. I know he likes that flavor. I substitute something that I know he doesn't like. That's what we do for each other. Therefore, he thinks I'm just this marvelous cook. 
And don't tell him the secret of the fact that I'm really not that great of a cook. I just know what he likes. We learn how to be loved by studying each other's likes and dislikes. We want to please God. We study what he loves. We learn we've got an eye open all the time in the book for anything that talks about something that he loves or approves of. John 14 verse 15 makes a statement of Jesus saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. For most of my Christian life, I thought I had to prove my love for God by keeping his commandments. It's not what he said. What he says is, if you love me, consequence of that is you'll just start keeping my commandments. And it's exactly how it works. Without even trying, we begin to want to please God in return. So, we come to the word. Is God telling you something that he wants you to do? Someone he wants you to reach out to, who's hurt you, who isn't safe, and he wants you to love that person. Someone that you need to forgive, and they're hard to forgive because the hardest people to forgive are the ones who hurt us and don't feel like they've done anything wrong, right? They're the ones that are really hard to forgive. Is there someone that he's saying, I want you to forgive that person? Is there something that he is inviting you to do, beckoning you to do, that scares you? You're being asked to do it, but you're scared to death to do it. You know deep down that that's exactly what he's asking of you, but for lots of different good reasons you don't. You will not experience the love of God for you unless you are obeying him, unless you love him so much that you are obeying him. It's not because he stops loving you when you are not obeying him. It's because we block, we do something that blocks ourselves from being able to experience the love of God. We block ourselves from being fully free. Most of my life, I told myself I was so shy. I'm so shy. And over the last maybe 10 years, I'm discovering I am not shy at all. I'm not shy. I'm an introvert, sure. I thought I'm not shy at all. And I bought my own life for years that I'm shy. Here I am talking in front of you. I, my shyness kept me in the very back row because I thought, I'm shy. I'm not. But I didn't discover that until I dared to do the scary thing. And then to do the scary thing again and again and again. It's out of obedience that I've become to see who I actually am, not who I tell myself that I am. I think he's maybe doing the same for you. And lastly, the last thing I want to talk about is just so simple. It's pursuing God. Pursue him. One of my favorite books is The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. If you haven't read it, it's a great one to do like a friend's book study with too because every page is just full of rich stuff. But in it, I think this is just what I will leave with you. He talks about a people, the kind of people I want to be, the kind of people you want to be. He calls them a people who are a thirst for God. I love that word, a thirst, very 1940s. That's when he wrote this. People who are a thirst for God, and they will not be satisfied till they have drunk deep at the fountain of living water. They desire God above all. They are a thirst to taste for themselves this piercing sweetness of the love of Christ. 
can we just pray right now?